The U.S. is one of the few nations in the world that regularly locks up prisoners in solitary confinement. Corrections officials don't call it solitary. Instead, they talk about segregation or special housing or restricted housing units. These inmates are locked down for 22 or 23 hours a day with minimal human contact. There's roughly 80,000 people in cells like these across the country. The mentally ill and even juveniles sometimes end up in solitary. Most psychiatrists who studied the issue agree that prolonged isolation can erode an inmate's mental health or even make them more dangerous. At the same time, segregation hasn't been shown to reduce prison violence. It's more expensive, and nearly everyone who spends time in segregation is eventually released to the streets. Now, some prison officials across the country are trying a new approach, but there are no easy answers. I'm Sarah Childress, a reporter for Frontline. In order to understand what's working and what isn't in this new push for reform, I've invited three corrections experts to tell us about their real-world experience with solitary confinement. It's part of our ongoing coverage of this issue, which includes a feature film, Solitary Nation, that goes inside a solitary confinement ward in Maine. It airs on Tuesday, April 22nd on PBS stations and will be available online at pbs.org frontline. Joining us today is Jim Austin, president of the JFA Institute, who has advised several states on reforming their use of isolation and consulted with Frontline on the making of Solitary Nation. We also have Bob Hood, the former warden at the Supermax Federal Prison in Florence, Colorado, currently a national security specialist, and Bernie Warner, secretary of the Department of Corrections at Washington State, which has recently changed its policies on isolation. So thanks again, all of you, for for being here today. And Bob, I want to start with you because you were the warden of the most secure federal prison in the nation for nearly three years. Um, And it's also one that relies heavily on the use of of segregation. So tell us what we mean when we talk about solitary confinement or isolation. What is it? uh, How do people get there? Yeah, the administrative segregation, as as the Bureau uses, might be a little bit different in, in some of the states. That's a form of separation from the general population, and it's used when the uh, continued presence of that inmate within the general population would pose a serious threat to the institutional security, staff, the public, etc. So the inmate housed there are normally there for protective custody, those that cannot go into the local populations, and they might be holdovers. They might be there just to be getting ready to be traveling to another institution. So you put them in an administrative type of a setting. And those awaiting hearings, you know, they might be uh, technically not accused. Let's say they, uh, someone assaulted an officer. You might put them in the administrative detention section pending the outcome of a disciplinary hearing committee. Sarah, this is, this is Bernie Warner. I, I think that for reasons that, that Bob has talked about, that we, we have sort of changed our discussion around this because of so many different terms used by different states and different systems and, and have simplified it to mean two things. One is... What are the inmates who are in restricted programs, and what are those who are in general population? That, that it was just the kinds of uh, strategies that we wanted to have were targeted toward anybody who couldn't, who couldn't really make it in a general population because they either felt like they could be a protective victim or that they presented a risk toward staff or, or other inmates. So when you talk about, uh, Bernie, when you're talking about the, this restrictive, um, what are the conditions for, for an inmate like that? Well, they'll vary, and I and I think that's that's part of the challenge. And and um, I think what what they have in common is that um, there's sort of more clarity about how you get in to the restricted status, and less clarity about how you get out. 
um, and and sort of the the focus of what happens in those programs is um, it might be different in the conditions, their access to programs. So I, I think that you know as we have, I think there's been a national interest by correctional administrators to uh, even if you're in restricted program, better understand why people are there. Uh, and then sort of target those behaviors or target those risks so they can ultimately transition back into the general population of the prison, or in some cases, they'll be released directly to the community. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, I want to bring you in here. Um, you know, you've worked with a lot of states in making changes. Um, why is this happening now? Why are so many states looking to make changes? Um, mostly uh, the litigation. Um, they are being sued. Not all the states, obviously, but the, the early reforms which occurred in Ohio, Mississippi, uh, were brought up after litigation was brought forward. Uh, and the issues on the litigation, I think Bernie kind of uh, hit it on the head. Um, there were due process issues in terms of uh, the, the reasons why you could be admitted to a segregated housing status, and then even more uh, troubling was how do you get out once you've been committed. So the courts have kind of come in and said you have to have some kind of objective criteria that would justify placement in these. These are like jails within the, the jail or prisons within the prison. And then there's conditions of confinement. Often there are deficiencies in mental health, treatment, medical care, just uh, access to programs, uh, visitation, phone calls, stuff like that. And then the other key part was uh, people were spending a lot of time, and there was no uh, clear means to the in, to the inmate to get out of that unit. So uh, what I see is that mostly it was litigation that brought it up, and, and now a lot of the states are doing things on their own to avoid the litigation. And there's also been some legislation as well, correct? Uh, well, the legislation is kind of coming in late. Uh, it's coming in, but it's... It's kind of after the fact. It's after they've they've gotten some uh, lawsuits filed. So I don't think the legislation has been that significant. I, I would say far and away, to me, my experience has been either the threat of a lawsuit or an actual lawsuit. And Bernie, in Washington State, you haven't had either, right? Uh, so so what has been uh, what's been the motivation there? Well, I, I've worked in states in which uh, they've had considerable litigation, and and uh, I just I don't think. Uh, litigation necessarily can be the most constructive way to re- reform, because I, I think people feel that they're uh, required to do it rather than they believe it's the right thing to do. So, you know, I think that, that Washington's motivation is that even though this is 3% or, you know, it varies in states, but but 96, 97% of your population can function in sort of the general prison environment. Those that can't represent a serious risk to uh other inmates or to staff. And, and so that deep end of your system, small numbers, is really an important population to pay attention to. And, and so our, our approach really was to try to understand why are people in segregation? And, and the one-size-fits-all is, is, has generally been the uh, approach in corrections. Uh, you present a risk, and, and therefore you're uh, in a very restrictive, confined environment. Um, but as we continue to peel back and, and try to understand why they're in there, because that's the only way you develop strategies for them to get out, we understood a large percentage of our po- of that population had mental health issues. Um, significant population were uh, entrenched in, in gang activity. 
And then there are those that we call chronic recidivists who just bounce in and out because they don't have the skills or the ability to function in a in a prison environment. And this is for, for any of you. I mean, you've mentioned uh, a lot of the different populations that end up in, in this kind of um, confinement, um, the mentally ill, um, people who are uh, recidivists, people in, in gang activity, people who pose a, a risk to staff or other inmates. Um, what are some of the solutions that the states are taking a look at? Well, again, each system is a little different. For the 119 federal prisons, each have their SEG units, each have that ability to uh, take people from the general population and secure them as needed. Um, But within the system, we've created the Supermax. It's it's only the third federal um, Supermax prison in, in history, Alcatraz, Marion, and now the one in Colorado and Florence. And so we've taken 219,000 inmates, the whole federal system, and we decided to have our SEG units in every one of those prisons, but also have the Supermax, which is, you know, no matter what you want to call it, to me it's, it's one big SEG unit. It's one big lockdown. And um, as, as Jim and others have said, you know, there's some people that have, it's time-tested, not just their immediate offense, but their continued uh, um, issues. And uh, some are just high visibility inmates. You know, they're terrorists, they're spies, they're people that have uh, you know, created major problems. And so the conditions, even for them, would not be about rehabilitation, not be about, well, how do we get this person back to work at the local Burger King? You know, it's just not designed that way. And some, beyond being in isolation, meaning separate cells, uh, some of the inmates are put under a restriction that the states couldn't uh, replicate. They probably go to federal prison if they replicated. You know, uh, we have special administrative measures. We call them SAMs. And so when the attorney general orders the director of the Bureau of Prison, who eventually orders the warden, my, my past position, to take an inmate and say, you will be in an isolated area. You will have no contact, verbal or visual contact with any other inmate. You will get a newspaper, but it's going to be a specific name of a newspaper, the USA Today, and it's going to be 30 days old when you get it. Those kind of prescriptions are not what the public is is used to hearing. They're used to hearing someone go into prison. If they get in trouble, they go to SEG, they get that. But then there's some other restrictions on top of the SEG, if you will, that uh, enhance it to such a degree that it, uh, it it does impact the inmate in so many ways. Tell me more about about the the impact on the inmate, the conditions. You mentioned briefly, you know, um, time in sec. How long do people spend there? What's it like for them, uh, for the typical prisoner? Bernie, what do you think? Well, again, there are a variety of reasons uh, why people are are placed in segregation, and I think what's important to understand is that is that you look at those behaviors. And then you you try to address them um, and and figure out what do they have to accomplish to get out of a, a restricted environment and, and put some responsibility on them. There's certainly a punishment component, particularly for very serious uh, behavior that involves uh, assaulting uh, staff or, or inmates. But I, but I think it's um, it, it's important to put some responsibility, recognizing that the more an inmate, more time they spend in a uh, segregated environment, the more difficult it is to return them to general population. And why is that? Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, because they're they're traditionally segregation is you know you have minimal contact uh, with uh, other people. It is all in a very controlled environment. Um, there's no congregate activities at all. Uh, everything is, is you know there's no contact visits. It's a it's a very restricted environment and. 
and so in Washington, for example, you know, a smaller state, smaller system, but but we had 50 people three years ago who were released right from segregation because they maxed out their time, who uh, went to return to their community, and they had no supervision. Uh, and and I, I just know that if one of those folks was uh, one of those inmates was my neighbor. I'd want the system to do something to be able to provide some intervention, some skills, so that um, they didn't continue to pose that that risk. So, so I, I think what surprised me is a couple things: is that we have found that even the toughest inmates um, are willing to participate in programming. We started out our penitentiary. We took an old broom closet and converted it into a classroom. And we, we developed desks in which inmates can be restrained uh, because we were concerned. But, but we've been able to have gang members from different gang groups be in the same classroom dealing with the same kind of programs uh, without any kind of assault either against each other or, or, or staff. Uh, so, so it's the willingness of, I think, of people to participate and also the willingness of our staff who have worked in SEG for a long time and who sort of defined what the culture needs to be and, and the fact that they've had an open mind to doing things differently. I wonder if you'd just elaborate quickly on this, the point that you made, uh, you know, about the concern of, of people coming out of segregation and going, uh, you know, into the community. What's the concern there? Well, picture yourself in an environment in which you have no uh, contact other than in restraints where you are uh, taken in, uh, you know, to shower or, um, you know, your food is delivered in your cell. Uh, you are there in some cases, you know, at least 20 hours a day and some systems up to 23 hours a day. And picture yourself in that environment, uh, really almost, you know, sensory deprivation for for months. And then uh, you get a, a bus pass. You walk out the front gate of a prison and go into the community. In some cases, you may have been incarcerated for two decades and things we take for granted like smartphones and computers and even mass transit uh, is so unfamiliar. And I, I think that, you know, that that uh, is not a, a good situation. Sir, on that note, uh, this is Bob Hood. You know, one of the, I think, catalysts for this whole discussion occurred last uh, year ago, March, when Tom Clements, the director of the Colorado Department of Correction, was killed by an inmate that was released directly from solitary confinement. And, you know, to be honest with you, for 36 years I've been going to prison conferences. I'll be going next week to Memphis for the National Wardens Conference. And I can tell you, I've never heard more discussion from wardens um, until recently about the mental illness, the, the impact of solitary confinement, the new classification systems. And I guess to my surprise, it's more, it seems like more reactive than proactive, that until the unfortunate uh, death of a, a director, a prison director, I, I now see at the federal level they spent $498,000 to come up with a um, special housing review and assessment that they're they're in the process of doing. You know, they're studying that. So some of it's reactive, simply saying uh, a state director dies from a guy directly released from SEG. And so I think all 50 states are looking at that and saying, what are we doing right and wrong? If you ask them a year ago, how many guys do you have in restrictive housing throughout the entire federal system, they would have said, oh, 13,500. If you ask them today, they say around 9,000. Um, the long-term, the cost of long-term incarceration, just, just a pure economic cost, but then also the psychological cost and you know the impact of people getting right out of SEG going to the public as something that we're all, you know, we're finally looking in the mirror and saying, guess what? All 50 states and the federal government 
can do better. Jim, I want to bring you in here because one of the things that, that sometimes people talk, and I think you've mentioned, is that there's a you know a real difference between um, you know isolation that you know Bernie was mentioning can be can be um, you know detrimental to inmates and separation. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the kind of solutions that that you might use for for the inmates who are who are particularly uh, concerning? I just you know, give you some specific, like in, in uh, I did work in Colorado with Tom uh, um, Clements. Forty uh, percent of the segregation inmates were being released right through the streets. Uh, it happens very frequently, more so than we we think. So that's an issue. I just want to put that statistic out there. On the conditions, a lot of these segregation inmates are double cells now, which is interesting. Uh, when I started out in corrections way back, and segregation was almost always a single cell, and the duration was very short. Uh, when, when I sat on the disciplinary committee, the most you'd give someone is 15, maybe 20 days. You know, you go to Illinois today, and they hand out segregation terms of hundreds, thousands of days. So that whole length of time has really ratcheted it up quite a bit, and it just starts snowballing in that uh, the inmates just can't get out. Their, the conditions start deteriorating. Uh, the corrections officials will say, well, they should get out at least one hour a day. Well, that, that at least never happens. It's always maybe one hour a day, and then if the inmate stops coming out, they don't come out at all. Um, and what so, happens? Uh, what happens? Mm-hmm. Well, they just, they did, and this is where, this is where, this is where litigation starts happening. Uh, they just start decompensating. And, uh, I mean, it gets pretty ugly, you know, uh, sparing species, you know, cutting on themselves, uh, becoming literally crazy. The longer they stay in there, and, and, and you really, these are not easy cases, though. I mean, this, these are not virgin in, in the prison system. They have done something pretty significant, usually, to get there. So it takes a special leadership, special staff, special commitment to work in these units and maintain, you know, a constitutional level of care and recognizing what you're trying to do is actually protect everyone that's involved in the prison. What about the role of the prison staff? Does, does this kind of, these kind of conditions, what kind of impact does that have on the staff and the people who are administering it? I, so this is Bernie. I, I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, staff are key for or any kind of reform or, or changing uh, an environment, and and but but staff, um, you know, they need tools to be able to do it, uh, and so we provide a lot of training to our staff, uh, engage them in the decision making. We don't, you know, I think as Jim mentioned earlier, there's always going to be a need to to provide some enhanced security around some inmates who pose a threat or a risk. I think part of our responsibility is to better understand why they're presenting that risk and develop some strategies to change that rather than just saying, you know what, if we put you in segregation for a few months or a few years, all of a sudden you're going to change because you're isolated from the rest of the prison population. So I think staff feel if they have some tools, if they have some say, uh, that it's not driven as a court expectation or a law, but they believe it allows them to operate a safer environment. Uh, and they can see some change in the population, then uh, what, what, what I would say our reforms are really staff-driven. I was going to ask Bernie and then Bob, you know, the question I always had is, should we be trying to turn over staff uh, at some point? Granted, they need the training, but I, I also worry about staff that spend too much time 
too many years working in those units, and I'm not sure what your reactions are to that, but it's, it's something that I see, you know, you kind of get numb to the situation, uh, and it's, uh, it's hard work, and it can take a toll on the staff. This is Bernie. I, you know, if it's a stagnant environment and you're constantly, frankly, at, at war with conditions that, that are very difficult to face and in, in the extreme negative side of, uh, of a segregation environment, then I, I agree that's not healthy for our staff. I think if they can engage in a way to, to change that environment, and, and see that as really influencing, then uh, we actually, you know, find uh, our staff are pretty motivated. The, the other issue I'd like to add is the architecture of these places. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the gold standard is uh, ADX at Florence. You know, that's uh, the Bureau is lucky enough to get a lot of money to build a, like a state-of-the-art high-security unit. A lot of states don't have that. They are trying to operate this in what was standard cell block design, and that's that also makes it more dangerous and unhealthy all the way around in terms of, I mean, just basic things, ventilation, sight, sound, uh, access to recreation yards. Uh, you know, one of the things that isn't talked about much in this discussion is is we think about it as after the fact when someone's placed in a restricted environment or segregation and what do we, how do we manage it, and we don't think much about a deterrence model that, that focuses on your population in high security areas to keep people from going into segregation. So part of our strategy is more than just once they're in, uh, managing it is, is to look at um, whether it's gang entrenchment or, or mental health issues that, that uh, allow for more structure and stability in general population and keep people from going in and out of segregation. So one of the strategies we're testing, for example, is is uh, one that's been used in the community in the last couple of decades called uh, ceasefire. Uh, it was used in Boston as a deterrent around gang behavior. And so we've worked with David Kennedy from John Jay uh, College and, and looking at that for gang behavior in our um, high security areas. And I think that culture, uh, you know, changing the overall culture of the facility is so critical. And I agree with uh, Bernie because... In the Bureau, in the Bureau of Prisons, every three years, the wardens are transferring to a new facility. When you size up what are the some of the obstacles, what are some of the issues, at least for me, it was instead of going into the SEG units and trying to decide, well, how can we stop this person from committing suicide or uh, enjoy getting up in the morning, even though they have 30 more days or 100 more days in segregation, it's what you're doing outside of SEG that makes a difference, as Bernie is saying. So to take those classes and say, you know, we we want you or you will take, not even we want you to take, you will take alternatives to violence. You will take some kind of cognitive restructuring, thinking a little differently about, you know, uh, crime. Uh, and sometimes the inmates might not want to do that. But most inmates, if you say, well, you do have a visit, you do have two children come to visit you every Saturday, how would you like to increase the time there? How would you like to do this or that? As a warden, I would take the biggest, toughest inmate on the yard and when I realized they have some humanity left, they truly do have some reason to live and they, and they have something positive going for them, it would be, I'll tell you what, we can increase, we can work with you on that visiting uh, day to, to your, see your kids. If you go through my alternatives to violence or parenting programs. Jim, uh, tell me more about the, the specific steps that the states that you've worked with are taking to, to make some changes. Um, it's pretty straightforward, but basically... Uh what we do is we, we go in and we reach some consensus quickly with the Department of Corrections, the officials, on 
who should be there, what are those, what's the criteria for admission. And so we immediately apply that criteria, and lo and behold, we usually find a significant number of people that they say, no, they never should have been put in there. Uh, that's happened because of a decentralization of the admission process. So we try to tighten up, you know, the controls who can go in there. Um, the second part, which I think is we haven't talked about too much, is determining how long they should stay. Uh, we've done a lot of research now in several states, and one finding is clear that if you look at, let's call it recidivism, which is people who leave segregation units and come back, it doesn't seem to matter how long they spend in the unit. So if they did six months, 12 months, 24 months, you get about the same result. It's much like prison incarceration. Uh, length of stay does not seem to have uh, much of an impact, if any, on recidivism. So that gives us an opportunity to start identifying people that we know from a risk point of view as have a good probability of going, uh, without becoming back to the units and get them out sooner. So the length of stay in these units has been attacked. And then we look at the severely mentally ill, make sure they're put in a mental health unit, uh, protective custody units, like I said, we try to get them removed. The other big picture thing that I just I feel like I have to say is, uh, if you look at this thing historically, uh, these segregation populations began to rise as the prison population began to dramatically expand. And in some ways, in some states, and I was in one of them, Illinois, uh, they created these units in a frantic attempt to try and maintain control of a rapidly expanding prison population that required hiring lots of staff, new facilities, and creating pretty uh, uh, unstable situations. In both Ohio, Mississippi, and Colorado, one of the things the things that we also worked on was lowering the prison population in general, because a lot of this stuff that you see going on, of people that go to segregation, is predatory behavior. And if you're not controlling your yards, your prison yards, your prison population, those predators are going to try and manipulate and take advantage, and that then gets people scared. They want to be locked up. You have fights occurring, stabbings are occurring, because of, you know control is going to happen one way or another either going to be done by the staff or it's going to be done by the inmate. One way out of this is also to start lowering the prison population in general. Do gangs complicate the picture? I know this is something that, um, you know, California is struggling with in particular now. You know, they've got an entrenched gang problem, um, and they talk about needing, uh, you know, some sort of segregation in order to maintain control. Is there an exception uh, to be made for gangs? Well, a lot of this is gang-related, if you, uh, and, and Bob can certainly speak to that, and Bernie, their states, but a lot of the disruptions that are occurring in the general population are tied to gangs trying to get the upper hand on controlling the prison economy and and other aspects of prison life. So yeah, absolutely, it's very important. Bernie, is is this a, is that an issue for you in Washington as well? It, well, it is, and and I think it ties a tie in the point earlier around uh, addressing that in your facilities. You know, some states, their practices is that every validated gang member is placed in in segregation. Uh, And if you do that, just because, you know, Washington State, probably like most states around the country, we have a 300% increase in gang members over the last, you know, two decades or so. So you will continue to build uh, systems then that, that tend to segregate your population unless you're willing to sort of look at strategies of, uh, of managing the, the gang behavior and your complete system, I guess, not, not just as using segregation as a tool to manage that. So that, that's what we've tried to do. 
and, and we reserve segregating gangs in high security areas uh, only for the highest risk population, and the rest are integrated in our prison population. How is that working for you? With the, with the approach you're trying now? Uh, we've been doing it for about 18 months, and, and our uh, uh, staff assaults are down, um, and uh, violence is, is reduced, uh, you know, but I think I'm reluctant to say anything's a success because, you know, you just need to continue to work on it. But it's a, it's a you know, I think people have talked about uh, different elements earlier. I think you need to have incentives for behavior, for positive behavior. I think you need to give people opportunities to, to move away from um, the, the gang entrenchment in institutions. Uh, we bring in what's called a moral voice where we bring in leaders from the community and uh, meet with gang members. And so it, it really is kind of a, a broader strategy of recognizing that we're probably not going to change uh, a person's gang affiliation, but we can set clear expectations about behavior that's acceptable in prison. All right. Well, you know, I, I also wanted to talk about the future, um, and, and I'd love to get a perspective from all of you on this. Um, you know, the U.S., you know, as, as one of you mentioned, really only started to, to use segregation, um, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago. Where do you see the U.S. prison system moving in the next 10 or 20 years on, on the use of segregation? What, what do you think it's going to look like? What are we going to be doing? Mrs. Bernie, I, you know, I think the point earlier that, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the horrific tragedy um, for the loss of my colleague Tom Clemens uh, certainly brought this to the spotlight. But I, I think many states really have been working at strategies, recognizing as Jim said earlier, that that uh, there were a variety of reasons why seg populations exploded, and and uh, the way we change things in corrections is to institutionalize the practice and develop policies and procedures that that allow for that reform, and and I think that's what we're working toward. We we set those up, so I I don't. Hopefully, it's not something that's just a spotlight or on a tragedy that lasts for a year or two, but it is uh, continued improvement and having responsible, humane prison systems in the future. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I see a, a push for, beyond more accountability, a push for more missioned housing, where um, the staff that are in that geographic part of the country or assigned to that specific uh, institution is trained to work specifically with that mission. I think most of our staff are really down on understanding the labels for gangs. They know how to intervene. They know how to do certain programs. But I think the mental illness uh, issue where we, we meaning the, the prison system, have become the mental institution of the day, we are not trained for that. We truly are not trained. So what happens is we try to run a quiet yard. We try to work with the inmates. And they try to work with us for the most part. But the easy cleanup, if you will, to keep a quiet yard is to put someone who maybe just isn't getting it, doesn't understand the order, doesn't understand the command, and is placed in SEG um, based on their disability, based on their their lack of wiring that uh, most of us are fortunate enough to have. I think when you when you look at it that way, our future prisons have to be looking at this missioned housing. Yeah, so we're, so we're, we're realizing that this facility has more mental health issues than a facility that's designed for a reentry center with two years to of sentencing. Jim, any, any thoughts for the future? Well, I think they'll, they'll, they will start declining. The size of them will start declining. I think we're going to see more kind of like specialized 
compartments of this population. I think you'll see dedicated protective custody units, uh, units that are, are almost like mental health units and run by a psychiatrist uh, with security provided. Um, I think, uh, I hope we will see uh, periods of shorter uh, times in these units will, will start emerging. There will probably be uh, a wave here of litigation. Uh, well, I know several states are in the pipeline to be sued and are going to be sued, and I think that's not bad for right now. I think a lot of good things do come out of litigation. But after the dust settles, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll have much safer and humane and smaller segregation. Mrs. Bernie, I, uh, the impacts of, of these reforms is that uh, they're not cheap, and there's a cost associated with a lot of then mental health staff, additional medical staff, additional training and programming. And it's not that it's not the right thing to do, but, but it's not as just easy for someone to say, okay, let's come up with uh, a lot of additional resources to, uh, to invest in, in a small segment of our institutions. I, I think it is important to prioritize it because it does have significant safety implications, but it's, uh, I also understand the pain that some systems have to be able to afford to do it. Oh, well, it would be very interesting to see what happens, uh, certainly with this new momentum. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Um, I want to thank all three of you for uh, taking the time to, to join us today. I, I really appreciate it. And for our listeners, you can visit pbs.org frontline for ongoing coverage of this issue and to see our upcoming films on incarceration in America, Solitary Nation, airing April 22nd, and Prison State on April 29th. For Frontline, I'm Sarah Childress.